There's a big difference between recognizing something and knowing something. I believe as we open up Luke chapter 8, we're going to see that there is a big difference between recognizing the very Word of God and knowing the Word of God. And once we get past the difference between recognizing God's Word and knowing God's Word, then there's a response for us once we then know and hear what God is telling us to do through His Word. So I think we're going to see two lessons today of how we can grow our faith once we hear and know the Word of God. So let me pray for us, and then we will get right into the text this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship together. We're thankful for the opportunity to gather in a warm facility and comfort to study your Word. God, we pray for these next few moments that we will hear from you that we will hear your word, and that it will be clear for all of us to how we are supposed to respond to it. Because as we'll see in this passage, there is a response required on our part. So God, whether we don't know you yet or we've been a believer for many years, help us to respond appropriately to your word. God, use these few moments we have powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first lesson I want us to see is found in verses 1 through 21, and that is hearing and cultivating. Hearing and cultivating. We really start this in, verses, in verse 4, but in, we see in verses 1 through 3 that Jesus or that Luke starts this in kind of a cool manner. He begins to talk about the women that are accompanying Jesus. So what do we make of this? Luke is the, the gospel writer that talks the most about women in Jesus' ministry. What Luke is trying to emphasize here is that women played a massive role in Jesus' ministry. It says in verse 3 that they gave what they could. They supported his ministry to keep him going, to keep him moving. So often we talk about the men, the 12 disciples, but we know that there are women that are following Jesus, supporting him through the ministry. And it also shows that Jesus' viewpoint of women in the first century was much better than the rabbis in the synagogues and in the temple. That Jesus cared for women differently and rightly, and the rabbis did not. So Luke starts this out, and he shows the women that are accompanying Jesus. It says at the end of verse 3, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So we see that the, these women have heard who Jesus is, and they follow him, and they give what they have in order to support him. We see in verse 4 that a large crowd is gathering all around Jesus, from town after town, gathering to see Jesus. And he begins to tell this parable that we just read. And he says, the sower went out to sow his seed, and there were four different types of seed that was thrown in four different places. The first soil, or the first seed was thrown by the sower and was trampled by the birds, or trampled, and the birds picked it up. There's also a second seed that was planted by the rocks. And if you know anything about planting seed and trying to grow it, throwing it into rocks is not a good solution. The seed withered away. The third seed we see in verse 7 is planted by the thorns. And if you know anything about planting seed, you don't want to throw it by the thorns either. And it got choked out. 
And Jesus finally gets to this fourth seed. And he said there was a fourth seed, and it was planted in good soil. And it yielded a hundredfold. This little section doesn't need a whole lot of illustration to the people that are listening to the story when Jesus was sharing it. These people worked in the fields. They understood it was probably a little silly illustration for them. Because they're farmers, they understand this. They're like, okay, why would you throw it by the rocks? Why would you throw it by the thorns? And even the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, what does this actually mean? Because in verse 9, look how the disciples, how they respond. He says that when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, they didn't even understand. They knew it was a silly illustration. Like, why would you throw the seed there? And Jesus says, he who has ears, let him here. That's the thing about God's Word, that we have to work to hear it. We have to tune our ears and our hearts to hear the Word of God, and not just hear it, but understand it. We must train our minds to crave the things of God, so that when we hear it, we actually understand it. And what Jesus is doing here is he's calling for his followers to listen and to have ears that actually listen. We see the disciples listen to this parable and they didn't understand. And Jesus responds to them from quoting Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In this Isaiah passage, God is calling Isaiah to be a messenger for God's word to people who won't understand, who won't understand and who don't understand currently. So Jesus is calling his disciples to do the same thing as well, to preach this message that they have heard, that they've been privileged to hear, and then go share it with other people. In verses 11 through 14, Jesus then begins to break down the parable. And the thesis of this, he says in verse 11, that the word of God is the seed. That's the point. That the seed is not whatever we want it to be, that it's the word of God. And he says that the word of God will be heard by many people and taken differently by people. Jesus goes on to explain that the first three illustrations of the seed are those who have lost the word because of life's difficulties get in the way of that. He says the devil comes and they snatch up what they believe in their heart. Or life's difficulties swarm in around you and they choke out the seed. Or the seed is planted in your heart and the roots aren't deep enough, so it just withers away. But there's one whose seed is planted. The Word of God is placed in your heart. And it begins to take root. And as we talked about last week, then it begins to bear fruit with that. It's evidence of a faith. It's evidence of a seed that's been planted in your heart. But we also know from last week about bearing fruit that it's a process that it takes time to bear fruit, that you don't just plant this thing, you don't just plant the seed and the next day you have what you want. The end of my eighth grade year in the middle school ministry in my church, 
the middle school pastor told us on the night before we, or the week before we promoted into the high school ministry, he said, I have a gift for every eighth grader going into ninth grade, but you have to come with me. So we followed him all over through the church, and he said, here's your gift. And he pulled this curtain, and it was not what we expected. I was hoping for, like, a new iPhone or, like, something cool. It was like, you know, as, a, as an eighth grade boy, you can imagine. But he opens up this curtain, and there are a bunch of trees there. And he's like, all you guys get trees. And I was talking to my friends, like, you got to be kidding me. What am I going to do with this tree? And he began to explain that this tree is going to represent our faith. That we plant the tree and the roots get established and it should serve as a reminder of our growing faith. But it can also serve as a reminder if the tree dies that, that we need to guard our faith, right? That you can't just plant something and just expect it to grow without any work. So after some time, I got behind the idea and I went out to my backyard and I planted this tree. And it was maybe this tall. I planted it, and for about two days, I really cared for it. I watered it. I took care of it. And after two days, I was like, this thing is ridiculous. And I gave up on it. And I let Mother Nature do whatever it wanted for this tree. And as we got into ninth grade and tenth grade, this tree was suffering. It was not doing well. It was diseased. It was not growing. Like nothing of this tree was pleasing to the eye. Multiple times my dad was getting ready to get the shovel. And he's like, we're digging this thing up. It's going away. But for some reason he never did. Something interesting happened with my faith during this time. It was, a, it was an interesting season of just kind of wandering through my faith with no real depth. Same thing with this tree. It was suffering. I wasn't growing in my faith. But as I went away to college, my faith began to mature. I was called to ministry at that point, serving in churches, learning about Jesus. And I came home from college, and this tree came back to life. It started to grow. And I asked my dad, I said, did you replace this tree? Did you tear out the bad one and put a new one in and not tell me? And he said, no, this is the same tree. The roots began to establish deep into the ground, and this tree is massive now. So often, we treat our faith the same way. We want results right now. Jesus, I came to church today. I heard your word. Is that good enough for me to just live my life the way I want to? But it takes roots. In order for our life and our faith to mature, it takes longer than we often expect it to. So often we just treat it like we we want it to happen now. We want the one encounter with Jesus to be all that we need when we need the roots that are established by daily walking with Jesus to dig deeper into our hearts for our faith to grow. And that's what we learn in the second parable, in verses 16 through 18. Jesus compares the Word of God to a light and a candle. And He says that no one puts a light under a jar or under a bed. Once you have the roots of your faith, you don't take the Word of God and just hide it where no one else can see it. We don't hide light and we we let it shine instead. Verse 17 tells us why. Because the Word reveals everything. We can't hide things from God. 
God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then in verse 18, what it's saying is the more of God's word we hear, the more of it that we receive. But the more we neglect the word, the more of it we lose. To hear more of God's word is to experience more of God himself. That's encouraging news for us, right? Because there's some of us in this room right now that want to experience God, that feel like he's left us and we're looking for God. But we learn that if we experience the Word of God, we then experience God himself. That's why we need to continually grow and mature by hearing the Word of God, because that is how we grow. We must keep replenishing our hearts with the Word because we know that if we aren't going forward, then we're going backwards. There's no standing still in our faith. We're either moving forward or we're going backwards. Verses 19 through 21, we see the results of a heart that's being cultivated by the Word of God. This is kind of an interesting response. People tell Jesus that his mother and brother, brothers are outside. Don't you want to go see them, Jesus? Look look at how Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus answered them and he said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Okay, that's kind of an interesting response, isn't it? Imagine if you were Jesus's mother or brother's well, that's kind of a slap in the face. Like, my physical family right here doesn't really matter anymore. And it's really confused people throughout throughout the times, and you know that it does confuse the people that were there. What we read throughout Scripture is that Jesus, as we become into the family of God, and we accept Him in our lives, He redefines our relationships. He redefines what family means. But what that means is it doesn't mean we forget our family here. It doesn't mean we just neglect the family that we have here. But rather, the Word of God holds to a promise of a better family and a new family. And that's really what the church is doing right now. A family gathered together as one of brothers and sisters in Christ, united together to worship Him. And we can hold on to the hope that the Word of God promises a new family. He redefines our relationships. It's a heart cultivated by Jesus. So that's my encouragement for you. Let us be people that hear the Word of God. But not just hear it, that we cultivate it in our hearts, that our relationships begin to change. Our identity begins to change through Jesus. Let us keep a fresh word of God in our hearts and our minds by reading the Scripture, by listening to it, and be a cultivated people awaiting this promise of a new and better kingdom, of a new family gathered together under Jesus. In verses 1 through 21, we see that we're to be people that hear and are cultivated But in verses 22 through 56, I want us to see believing and applying. 
We saw hearing and cultivating, but now I want us to see believing and applying. In the remaining part of the chapter here, we learn the second lesson. We can't just hear it, but we hear and we become cultivated by it. It stirs in our hearts. It makes sure our hearts are good soil for the Word of God to absorb into our lives. But it continues on. We must believe it. We must believe that it actually is the Word of God, that it actually can change our lives, and then we apply it. It can't just stop at hearing, but rather we must do something with it. In the first story in verse 22, we encounter the the disciples and Jesus out on the water, and they encounter this storm. And in verse 22, we see the disciples, or in verse 23, we see the disciples are panicking in fear. Right? These are fishermen. These are trained fishermen who are very comfortable out on the water. And yet this storm is so severe that even the professionals are panicking that they are going to die in this storm. So they go to Jesus. They wake him up. Like, you've got to do something. What does Jesus do? He reveals his power. And he tells the winds and the waves to cease. And they do. The storm is gone. The storm ceases. Jesus reveals his power in front of the disciples and he says, Where is your faith? He says that in verse 25. He looks at the disciples and says, Where is your faith? It's important to know here that the disciples are not being rebuked for having no faith. They're not being rebuked because they don't have faith, but rather they lack the sufficient faith to realize that they were in the Lord's presence and that they had no need to fear in the midst of this storm. Have you been there? The storms of life are pressing in all around you. Difficult situation after difficult situation seem like they're just crashing into your life. And it's surrounding you. And it's not that you don't have faith in Jesus. It's that we lack the sufficient faith to understand that Jesus has control of our storms. And so we begin to wonder, maybe this is the trial that my circumstances will win. Maybe this is the situation that is finally bigger than God is. Maybe this is the opportunity that drags me away from Jesus. Have you been there? Jesus asks the question, he says, where is your faith? We're to believe the Word of God. We're to believe that the promises that God will never leave us. And we're to act and live as the people who don't live in that fear, but have faith in Jesus. That's the application of belief, is actually believing it. Is not just saying you believe it, but showing through your faith that you actually do. We see here all throughout this story the authority that Jesus has over all creation. And it's a comforting thing for me, and it should be a comforting thing for you to be in the presence of God and recognize that He has power over all. He has power over our circumstances, He has power over our lives. 
does God and His Word have authority over your life? The Scripture, the driving force of your life, the place that you find your shelter in, and the place that you put all your belief. Because what we're going to see in this next section reveals that when we truly do believe in the Word of God, it'll set us free. That there's freedom there. Look with me at verses 26 through 39. We encounter this man who's been possessed by a demon. And this isn't just one demon. Jesus asked them, asked the name, and he says, our name, our legion, because we are many. This man's life has been ruined. He's been kicked out of his city. He's been kicked out of his own home. He now dwells among the tombs with no one else. We learn in this passage that people have tried to help him to cast out the demons and nothing will work. This poor man has lost everything because of a demon. His life has been ruined. But watch with me in verse 28. What happens when Jesus interacts with the demons? They recognize Jesus. They recognize that Jesus has the real authority in the situation and as life in life as a whole. And we see that they tremble in his presence. The demons are then cast out in this interesting story where they fall off the cliff and um, they, they go into the pigs and then they uh, jump off the cliff. But what I want to focus on is how the man responds. The man that's lost everything, what does he do? As the demons are cast out, he's found at the foot of Jesus. That's faith. That's what it means to believe. He sees Jesus for who he is. We see the freedom in his life, that everything was bound and chained and he had no freedom and Jesus took him and set him free. We see later on at the end of this passage that he goes out to the city and he tells the people what has happened. The same people that rejected him, the same people that left him, the same people that tried to do what they could and said, you're just not worthy enough to be in our presence so we're going to kick you out. Jesus says, go back into them and tell them what happened. Tell him who set you free. But we see that the man doesn't really get the best response, so he goes back to Jesus and he's like, okay, if you're going to get on this boat and you're going to go to a different city, these people don't like me, so I'm just going to come with you, right? You set me free, you gave me all this freedom, so I'm just going to come with you. Like, you won't even know I'm here. I'll just kind of bunker away in the, in the, in the basement. I, I, I don't need a lot of things. Like, I haven't ate much anyway, so I'll just, I'll be okay. You won't even know I'm here. And Jesus says, no, you have a responsibility to these people to tell them who set you free. Let's go. So the man goes back into his city. That's believing in Jesus, and that's applying it by telling people about how Jesus has changed your life. There's power there. It makes me think, when was the last time that we got passionate and telling people how Jesus has changed our life? Because that's us. We're not Jesus in this story. We're the man that's been possessed, that's been set free by Jesus. And we have the power and the opportunity to share how, how Jesus has set us free. Verses 38 and 39 tell us that this man goes about his town telling everyone what has happened and how Jesus has set him free. 
Can I tell you, that's the gospel. That really is. Through Jesus, God does everything that we can't do. The demon-possessed man can't just get the demons out. Jesus had to do it. Jesus provided payment for our sins when we couldn't do it. Jesus provided eternal life through the cross of Jesus when we couldn't do it. And by that, He sets us free if we believe in Him. And if you believe in that today, you have been set free. The chains that once held you are now gone. And by God's grace, we come to believe. The man here not only believes, but he applies. Do you believe? And if you do, do you feel set free? Because Jesus tells you, by my grace, your chains are gone. In this final section, verses 40 through 56, we enter the story of a man named Jairus. He's a leader of a synagogue. His 12-year-old daughter is dying. She's not doing well, and he sees who Jesus is. He's heard the stories about him. He recognizes Jesus, and he runs to Jesus, and he says, my daughter is sick. This man comes to Jesus, the one who can heal, the one who can restore. Jesus agrees to go to this man's house to meet the daughter and to do what only Jesus can do. And as he goes out... There's a great crowd around him. People are pressing in, and he feels somebody touch his garment. And he says, it feels like my, some of my power has escaped me. And he begins to ask all the disciples, who's touched me? What's going on? And we see a woman at Jesus' feet who has touched his garment. This woman has suffered from bleeding for 12 years, and we learn in this passage that she has done all that she could Every single ounce of money that she has has gone to the doctors to try to fix it. Everything she has, right? This isn't just like, I've met my deductible. This isn't just, I've used my health savings account that I've saved up for a few years to try to fix this. Everything we have, both my checking and my savings account, they're gone. Nobody can, nobody can fix me. Nobody can heal me. But she recognized who Jesus was. She had the faith in who Jesus was, and she touched his garment. And it says as soon as she did that, her faith or her, her sickness was healed. Look how Jesus makes it personal for her. He calls her daughter. This is interesting because Jesus, being all powerful, he knows everyone's name, right? He could have just said her name. He could have just said woman, but he calls her daughter. That's personal, isn't it? It's very personal. And after healing her, he sends her away and says, go in peace. Jesus does this miraculous thing of healing the woman, and he says, go in peace. And he's like, okay, it's time to go do it again with another woman, with a 12-year-old girl. We interact in this story that the, there's people that go to Jairus and they're like, hey, so your daughter has already died. There's no reason to um, bring Jesus into this situation. Like there's a bunch of crowd, there's crowds that are swarming him. Let's just not bother Jesus because there's nothing he can do because she's already passed away. And Jesus says, 
you must not understand who I am. So he takes a few of his disciples, and he gets to the house, and in verses 54 and 55, he performs a miracle. He brings this girl back to life. And in that moment, Jairus' daughter became a foretaste of the resurrection and the life to come, of what Jesus is going to do. And when he resurrects this next time, it's not just going to be for Jairus' daughter. It's going to be for all of us. Because what he's done on the cross and what he did through the resurrection is for all of us. What we see in the story is that when we believe in Jesus, he makes us well. And I want to preface that because I'm not just talking about physically, right? I'm not saying if you believe in Jesus, then you'll never have struggles physically again. You're going to live this healthy physical life. What I mean by that is Jesus, if we believe in him, he makes us spiritually well. We're all sin sick. We are. We're in desperate need of help. We're the lady in the story who's done all that she could on her own and it wasn't good enough. We're the girl who is dying and in need of the healing that only the Savior can give. And in both of these illustrations, look how Jesus responds. For the, for the woman, he called her daughter. For the child, he says, child, or your version may say daughter as well. He makes it personal. The same thing is true for you today. If you have faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, he calls us son and he calls us daughter. That by believing in him, it means that he's a personal God. And faith in Christ can heal our weary souls and he raises the person dead in sin to newness of life. And he can do that for you today. If you've never said yes to Jesus, Today is your day by repenting of your sins, by believing what Jesus has done on the cross, that he conquered Satan's sin and death. And if you put your faith in him, he will set you free. And he'll call you son, and he'll call you daughter. But maybe for you, you already believe and you've accepted Jesus. You need to be reminded that he still calls you son, he still calls you daughter. He's not just a personal God at the moment of conversion. He's a personal God in our weakest and our strongest. And that it's our responsibility to hear the word, to believe what Jesus has done, and then apply it by living it out and telling the world that Jesus has set us free. Let's pray.